And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of divers diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed unto a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him, And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. As I was scrolling through the YouTubes, as all of us are wont to do at one point in our day, uh, this week I saw a video on how to tell a good joke. And whether or not I know how to tell a good joke, well, I will leave to your own judgment. Uh, But uh, the first example or suggestion uh, said said something about responding to a question in an unexpected manner. We usually call this subverting the expectations of others. It usually is used to excite interest in the listener. It causes us to be curious. We ask ourselves, what's going on? Because what we expected to happen doesn't. This is a device that Mark uses throughout his gospel. He wants to generate curiosity about the person and work of Jesus. He wants to create an expectation, a a question, who is this person and what is going on? Although his audience probably would not have used the language of rabbi, they would have understood what a teacher or leader ought to be. Mark's probably Gentile Roman audience might have been unfamiliar with the word, but they knew the concept. They would have recognized various forms of teacher. They would have known about philosophers like Aristotle. They would have known about experienced mentors like Seneca. They knew about shamans, priests, priestesses, and sibyls who could perform wonders, even if uh, that that experience uh, might have caused them a modicum of skepticism about the authenticity of those reported events. But my point here is that Mark's audience would have had in their mind a category and expectations of a person like Jesus as he appears in the gospel. Mark has set up Jesus as a new religious leader or teacher, a rabbi. He has come teaching. He has divine appointment. He has accumulated a following. He has demonstrated his powerful teaching in the synagogue. He has performed wonders in casting out demons. Mark therefore establishes Jesus and the category which his audience would understand. But then at this point, Mark begins subverting all of their expectations. This will feature throughout the rest of the gospel. He intends for his audience to always uh, excite them to ask, who is this person? As we continue to consider this gospel, we begin uh, to see the subversion in this passage. And I want us to trace Jesus' ministry as he conducts a private ministry 
an open ministry, and an extended ministry. A private ministry, an open ministry, and an extended ministry. One of the expectations that Mark's audience probably had for Jesus' ministry includes a very public ministry. In their minds, they probably had two categories of holy men. I will call them the propagandist and the hermit. And these were very two solid categories of uh, shaman thought leaders uh, in that first century. The one built up a following in a very public manner. He, there would be uh, a gathering of people uh, to hear him, uh, a creation of a solid base, and possibly a, a movement, although most philosophers uh, usually stayed at one place and taught. But the other would be the hermit, the one who retreats from the world to whom people would go and uh, seek out to hear his teaching. Now, so far in the gospel, Mark has presented Jesus as the first kind, the propagandist, the one who goes out and uh, builds a following and goes into a public place and preaches and speaks. And yet now he subverts that by having Jesus perform a miraculous event in secret. He defies assumptions about what a public teacher, a public healer, ought to be and to do. Jesus confronts a problem with a purpose. After his teaching and exorcism in the temple, Jesus retires to the house of one of his disciples. Look at verse 29. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Again, we meet with our friend adverb immediately, euthus. In these first three verses, 29, 30, and 31, this word appears in each one of them. Mark keeps up the pace of speed uh, with these acts. This is the same day Jesus goes straight from the synagogue to the house of Peter. We should remember that these households often were extended and included uh, a lot of the family. Peter, uh, presumably the elder brother, leads the household uh, with his, and within that household is included his brother Andrew. The rest of the disciples that Jesus has already called gather together as James and John follow them into the house. We may assume the prosperous nature of the fishing enterprise by the nature of hospitality that Peter is able to offer Jesus and to the rest of the city. This reminds us that uh, following Jesus costs something. Peter does not engage in hyperbole when later on in Mark he will say, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. They have left because they believed the promises made to them by the Lord Jesus. But as they come into the household, a disaster looms. Look at verse 30. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. The translators of the authorized version try to add some variety to the continuous, repeated euthus, or immediately. Uh, they don't want to keep using the same word over and over again, and so in verse 29 they use the word forthwith to mean immediately, and in verse 30 they use the word anon to mean immediately. Unfortunately, we think of anon means at some point, but Mark uses it immediately. When they enter the household, one of the first things they say to Jesus is, Oh, by the way, Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. It seems that the family 
does not tell this to Jesus, though, as a beg for help, but perhaps to explain an absence that might have shown a lack of honor to the guest, to explain why a respected member of the household cannot greet the honored one entering. Or perhaps they mean to warn the guest of the hazard of disease or infection that might be in the house. For us, we think of a fever Oftentimes we think, oh, well, you know, a couple of antibiotics, a couple of aspirin, uh, lay down and, and drink a lot of fluids and it'll be okay. But let's not minimize the peril that this event describes. As the commentator Gundry writes, we should not allow modern advances in medicine to lead us to underestimate the seriousness of fever in ancient times. This was not just, uh, Peter's mother-in-law has a little bit of the sniffles, a little bit of the crud, and she'll be, she'll be okay in a bit. Peter's life, wife has a fever and might die. Disease, infection, dishonor, and death linger in the house into which Jesus has come. But Jesus acts Definitively, look at verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. When I read this as a juvenile, I uh, read, read it rather abruptly. After all, that is Mark's technique. I read it uh, sort of like an incident that happened while my family was together uh, for Christmas. I was sitting on the floor doing something with my nieces as they as their want, and of course, being my age, getting up can, can kind of be from the floor a bit of a chore. And so uh, someone had to lift me up. And so they gave their hand and just yanked me up. And that's kind of the way that you might have read verse 31. But Mark's description uh, suggests another vision. The word lifted could be translated was lifting, a progressive verb. As you would gently help someone who was infirm to sit up and then to stand up, and then to walk. Jesus is not just yanking this person up. That's Mark's quick pace. He wants you to understand that he is uh, dealing uh, kindly, and yet effectively. He immediately heals her. And then she responds with service. This implies that the proper response to the Lord's healing, to the Lord's ministry, is service of him. And such is the case, but it also shows the honor that she has in the house to serve the honored guests. It's in a sense she takes her rightful position in the family as the honored one. We won't waste time on the question of Peter's marriage as has been bandied about in the commentaries. Needless to say, the Bible suggests that Peter even takes his wife on his apostolic journeys in 1 Corinthians 9.5. And that matrimony is not uh, forbidden to ministers, as some wrongfully claim. Mark's concern deals less with the trivia of Peter's marital state and more to do with the unusual character of Jesus. As the commentator R.T. France notes, Mark does not allow us to picture Jesus as a traveling healer with a set technique. He says that he doesn't, Mark does not allow us to put category or pigeonhole Jesus into a certain uh, frame of reference, a certain category that we anticipate him uh, doing something in. Instead, Mark portrays him as a man of authority 
who responds as may be appropriate to the differing needs as he meets them. Jesus does not fit into the accepted, expected forms of a traveling healer and teacher. He does not have a set formula for healing. He doesn't require that all the healings he does be done on a stage before witnesses. In fact, each individual Jesus heals has a unique story. This speaks to us because we often look at the ills of the world in a collective manner. We see the ills of the world and think that they all have the same solution. After all, there is one ill affecting and inflicting the world, and that is sin, and there is only one solution, and that is salvation. But Jesus teaches us that applying that solution varies from person to person. It requires care and compassion for the sin-enslaved soul. Are you willing to bring comfort and the gospel hope to mangled souls? We see Jesus' private ministry, but we see also his open ministry. Now, you might have expected, since uh, the first one was private ministry, that this would be public ministry, uh, but it's not. Jesus doesn't go to the people. The people go to Jesus. And therefore, we ought to consider when and where this ministry takes place. Mark makes a great do over the timing of this event. Look at verse 32. And when it was even, when the sun did set, they bought, brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. Mark uses two phrases to describe the time when one could have done. And why is this? Well, if you remember the timing of this event, it's because of the nature of the Sabbath. These Faithful adherents to Judaism refused to do work, even gathering together at the door of Jesus to see him, even bringing people to Jesus to be healed on the Sabbath until the Sabbath is over. And Mark doesn't seem to criticize the, these people for the, their respect of the Sabbath. And you might find this rather curious, since Jesus rebukes uh, in Luke 13 a ruler of the synagogue who makes this comment, there are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But if you look at that context, uh, what Jesus rebukes is not uh, the Sabbath principle, but the hypocrisy of this man who ha doesn't have a problem with the people, he has a problem with Jesus. This is classic passive-aggressive behavior. You start yelling at the people instead of confronting Jesus with what you think he has done wrong. These people, in contrast, believe the power of Jesus, not just to cast out the demon possessed, but also to bring the ill to him. And Mark describes the pileup at the door of Peter's house in verse 33, and all the city was gathered together at the door. Mark clearly uses hyperbole to describe the crowd at the door of the house Imagine the scene at Peter's door where it looks like everyone in town has come to see Jesus and to be healed. In contrast to the all language in verse 33, Jesus heals many in verse 34. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. We may assume that the reason that Jesus doesn't heal everyone is because of time. 
Even words of power take time to utter. Again, we see uh, glimpses of Jesus dealing individually with every ill, every demon-possessed person. Jesus dealing individually with all elements, all uh, colors of human brokenness. Mark notes the power of Jesus in a way that is often unclear to modern eyes. When Jesus forbids the devils from speaking, he does so for a reason that uh, Mark notes in, his, in that verse, because they knew him. Commentators are split about this question. Some claim that Mark doesn't want a declaration of the nature of Jesus' being, that he is the Son of God, until after the crucifixion. Their argument is that Mark uh, wants to keep this kind of a hidden thing. Uh, he wants always his people to ask, who is this guy, rather than telling them who this guy is. Well, there's a bit of a problem with that because all the way in verse 1, he's told them that this is Jesus, the Son of God. But the other, I think the other is this. I understand it in the way that uh, Gundry summarizes his ultimate purpose. His shutting up the unclean spirit showed his greater power. See, Mark's Gentile Roman audience understood that words and names and the ability to describe someone uh, had power. It's a very ancient assumption that uh, there is, uh, that if you know someone, if you know their name, you have power over that person. You see this when Jesus cast out a legion. He asks his name. And so, to be able to silence the demons who know Jesus shows his greater power over them. To give the demons the, what would be considered in the first century such advantage over Jesus and had to have Jesus silence them shows the power of Jesus. Instead of overcoming him, he shuts them up, and with a word, he drives them away. He robs them of their hosts, the object of their torment. Here is a hermit public ministry. It doesn't fit in the categories of, uh, that the audience has in their minds. Who is this person who turns a message in a synagogue into a citywide crowd at the door of his disciples' house? What faith does this person deserve? Who can break the power of spiritual evil with a word and silence the voice of deceit? My friend, the world lies. The messages we hear regularly tell us that everything is fine. It convinces us that we may find peace and joy in what the world offers us. It pressures us to believe in its power. And yet we live in a time where more and more we are seeing through the lies, and so many others are beginning to see through the lives, that pl things aren't fine, that we have no peace and joy, that the avenues of power are clogged with petty, puerile potentates jockeying for screen times. We find our souls mangled and hopeless. But Jesus deserves the faith we put in idols. For he is God made man. He heals souls through his life and death. These miracles we have seen in this passage prove that he has power to heal his people.
He can repulse disease. He can shut the mouth of lies. He drives away spiritual evil, and he can drive away the evil in our own hearts. He is able to bring life to our death, dead soul. For his death and his resurrection prove just that. My friend, do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose to bring your soul new life? I urge you to turn from the lies of sin and to follow him. We have seen Jesus' private ministry and his open ministry. And finally, I want us to see his extended ministry. Things are going very well in Capernaum. And logic would dictate that Jesus would stay a week, a month, consolidate his power base, build up his disciples. But does he? We see that presumption after we find him praying. Imagine a house exhausted after all the excitement of the day and a long night of healing and people cramming the door. It's been a busy day for Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Presumably all five were at the synagogue as Jesus speaks to them and with authority as he heals. As they go to the house, as they heal, as Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. They spend time fellowshipping there uh, that afternoon. And as soon as the sun goes down, the whole city comes to the door. And how long into the night was Jesus there uh, teaching and healing and casting out demons? And finally, the house dies down. The excitement goes away. The crowd leaves. The house plunges into quiet. And everyone collapses in sleep. And just a few hours later, a soul figure emerges from the house in the dark. So we read in verse 35, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. Jesus leaves the house and goes to his deserted place. Interestingly, Mark here uses the term for wilderness that we have seen before, but here he uses it as an adjective modifying the noun place. It is different from the wilderness noted before. Instead, it refers to a place apart from people. I like the idea of solitary because it emphasizes Jesus being alone with the Father in prayer and communion. Jesus finds it necessary the day after what was probably a great day of uh, ministry, that before dawn broke, he needed to pray. He knew that once dawn broke, the house would begin to stir and that solitude would be impossible, that time alone with his father would be cut short. And so he takes control of his time. Even in this act, we see Jesus exercising authority. He doesn't let events overtake them. He controls the events around him. He does so not in kind of a a new time uh, management way that we think of. He does so with divine authority that we can't replicate. And yet his appointment with the Father speaks wisdom to our hearts. After all, if the Lord of glory made time for solitary communion with the Heavenly Father, how much more do we need such times in our lives? 
And if we have such a great need, how insistently should we anchor them into our schedule? Jesus knew what he needed and knew what he needed to do in order to obtain it. He had to get up early before the house was stirring while it was still dark and leave and go somewhere where he could be alone and pray. As a note of curiosity, this is one of three times that Mark notes Jesus praying here after the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verse 46, and in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, verses 32 through 34. We have been asking the question, is this a gospel in three acts? And maybe here are three acts. Of course, they do not mark the beginnings of the three acts, but indicate times of transition. In Jesus' absence, though, the disciples grow a bit concerned. Look at verse 36. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. Simon apparently leads the disciples even at this early date. But perhaps... He is leading them because he's the host, and Jesus has left his house, so where has he gone? The word here, followed, means pursued after. There is some urgency here. They are seeking the Lord because uh, there's an issue. The Sabbath is over, and so uh, we don't hear what is going on, but perhaps people are even now starting to wonder where he is, gathering at Peter's house. And so they say to him in verse 37, When they found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. They seem to assume by that statement the Lord would continue his ministry in the city of Capernaum. Hey, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Things are going so well at Capernaum. You've got momentum here. Let's keep it going. Let's, this is uh, one of the chief cities, if not the chief city, in the region of Galilee. This is the place for you to set up your base and expand it, create disciples and send them out throughout all of the region. There's so much more work that needs to be done, more teaching, more healing, more exorcisms. It's what is expected from a rabbi who has just begun his ministry, his public ministry. Less than 24 hours of ministry. You haven't even spent a day here yet in, in exercising your gifts. And the city is eagerly wondering and waiting where the healer and teacher is. But Jesus again subverts the expectations. Look at verse 38. And he said, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore I came forth. Instead of spending one more day, a week, a month in Capernaum, with less than with perhaps less than 24 hours of ministry, Jesus leaves for the other cities around Galilee. Strategically, Capernaum seems an ideal place to set a base, to create a base from which to begin your crusade ministry. Establish your base in this prominent city and send out your disciples to the villages, to the other towns. But instead, the leader takes his four disciples and goes off into the surrounding cities and villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And he preached there, verse 39, in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. A few years ago, I read a book called Small Town Jesus. It was sent to me by a person I hold very dear, uh, Pastor Stephen Doe 
if you actually go to the OPC, I checked it this morning, it might have changed, the OPC website, uh, he, he wrote their lead article. Uh, I didn't know him. He's, the, he's formerly the regional home in, missionary for the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic. But we met at a general assembly and formed a friendship. And he sent me this book, unsolicited. All of a sudden, I get this book in the mail, and it's uh, Small Town Jesus by Steve Doe, and I, I cherish it because he read it and he thought of me. And while I can't commend the book in total, there's very few books I can commend uh, the book in total, the author begins with a very curious observation. He observes that Jesus does not develop his mission in the way that many modern mission methodologies operate. He emphasizes that Jesus went to small towns. And it seems that this is where he spent much, if not most, of his mission. He invested more in the few than he did in Jerusalem. And here we are, in the dead zone between Shreveport and Alexandria. A pit stop between two cities of modest size, we might say. We, we live in the flyover region that few seem to care about. And we may ask ourselves, who would dare to do ministry here? Who would choose to invest in God's people here? Who will care about the people of Manny, Pleasant Hill, Provencal, Kasachi, Robeline, Hagewood, Belmont, Natchitoches? And yet Mark shows you that Jesus chooses to send himself to the small places. When we consider our towns unimportant, when we care more about happen, what happens in big cities rather than what happens next door, when we believe that what happens elsewhere matters more than what happens down the street, we have believed the lies of the world. Jesus goes to the villages, he goes to the small towns, and he never once set his foot in Rome and only occasionally went to Jerusalem. Now when I say this, I'm not saying it to defend the existence of Covenant Church. I'm saying it to encourage you. Your community is the kind of place Jesus chose to visit. It's the kind of place where he chose to minister, to teach, and to heal. It was once popular to ask, what would Jesus do? And the answers often got rather crude. But I su submit to you on the basis of Mark that he would go to your small town and he would serve. And therefore, I suggest Christian, do what he would do. For Jesus puts you in your region, in your city, in your town for a reason. And that reason was to imitate him, to bring the gospel healing to dead souls. To invest in people who each one has a unique struggle, a unique story, a unique way in which sin has damaged them. And Jesus calls you to serve them, to take his word and give it to him, to take his authority and show them where they might find healing.
No, we can't do the healing. We cannot do what Jesus did. We can only point people to the one who is able to heal. We can only show them and do what Jesus has called us to do. Will you heed his call on your life? Will you choose to imitate your Savior? Let's pray together. Let our compassion burn for the small and the near. Father, give us a longing for your presence that we may zealously guard our time alone with you. Anchor our souls in your powerful healing that we may show the great physician to the world. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.